Hey guys, this is Jim. Welcome to the Holmes Politicast. Uh, we have a number of stories to get to today, so we'll get right into it. Um, oh, only, well, first I'm going to say only eight weeks until the election, which is not very long at all. Eight weeks. Of course, my fear is that we won't even know who wins on election night or there's going to be lawsuits and it'll be dragged out until the Electoral College has to, you know, until the Electoral College and it might go to the Supreme Court. And then in an absolute worst, worst case scenario, it's not settled by the time it goes to Electoral College, which means it'll get thrown into the House of Representatives, which then will just be a disaster. And... Um, my biggest fear is that nobody's going to feel the election is legitimate, no matter who wins, that both sides are going to say, the, the other side is going to say, uh, this isn't a legitimate president. And uh, so anyway, eight weeks, uh, I'm crossing my fingers, eight weeks and we'll know who won in this horrible period of time between of the pandemic and the election and everything will be done and we're able to move on. So uh, the first couple of stories are uh, statewide here. Michigan Capital Confidential actually has a couple of different stories, two different stories here that I wanted to touch on. And it's by Tom Gantert. And it says, Whitmer's enhanced executive order penalties appear outside the law and the Constitution. The state of Michigan may be violating a court ruling by issuing much larger fines than allowed for businesses that violate one of Governor Gretchen Whitmer's COVID-19 executive orders. On August 21st, the state of Michigan announced it had cited six businesses for violations for, quote, not taking the appropriate steps to protect employees and their communities from the spread of COVID-19, end quote. A state agency issued a press release headlined, State Issues COVID-19 Citations for Workplace Safety Violations Urges Businesses to Protect Employees. The violations were related to social distancing and face mask use, issues covered in Whitmer's executive orders. In June, the Court of Claims ruled that in seeking to increase penalties specified in her own executive orders, the governor's team were acting outside the law. On behalf of builders and landscapers, the Mackinac Center Legal Foundation filed a lawsuit in May, arguing that it violated the state constitution to increase the penalties beyond those specified in the same law authorizing the emergency executive orders. In Executive Order 97, Whitmer implemented strict workplace safety measures that increased penalties for executive order violations by businesses. The previous penalty was a nine-day jail sentence and a $500 fine. But then she transferred the enforcement of this executive order to the Michigan Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or MIOSHA. The penalties, which were a three-year felony and a fine of as much as $70,000, were increased to those authorized by a different law. But the court ruled that the fines and penalties had to be limited to those specified in the law authorizing executive orders, which are misdemeanors subject to a $500 fine. So let me just break this down. Um, uh, that So she used the executive order law 
to implement this, which puts a limit, a cap on how much you can find. But then she used another law, which is the Myosha um, rule, to then say, even though the executive order you, I signed at limits or outlines what the crime is, the punishment will be decided by the Myosha law. And what the court ruled was that you can't do it. It's not like an a la carte menu where you just get to pick and choose. I'll use this law, but implement this fine over here from this law over here. And, you know, in this jail sentence from another law over here in 1962 and this one from 1945. And I'll use another part of the law from 1981. You know, you can't you can't just pick and choose from the various laws, the parts you like about them and implement them all together. If she signs an executive order, it can only be limited to the amount in the executive order, which the law states in allowing her to sign an executive order limits it to $500. But now, like I said, they're up um, to 7,000 at one point, and she could go up to 70,000 in a three-year felony sentence. So um, here's what she is arguing, it says the state, but really it is Whitmer because it is not the people of the state or even the legislature that's arguing this. It's only her. The Myosha General Duty Clause requires an employer to provide a workplace that is free from recognized hazards that are causing or are likely to cause death or serious physical harm to the employee. And that clause citation carries a fine of up to $7,000. For example, the state cited a Speedway gas station in Waterford where employees were inadequately wearing face masks that were under the nose and that it was not providing face coverings to employees free of charge, among other violations. So Myosha fined the gas station $6,300. Under this interpretation, the penalties that would apply in these cases are those that are specified under the quote, cause or likely to cause death or serious physical harm to the employee, unquote. So this is, uh, this is just ridiculous. Again, I, th I think, I feel like a broken record. We talk about this almost every week for the past six months. And um, at the date I'm filming this, it is the six-month anniversary of Michigan being under lockdown. So for six months, it's pretty much been a refrain from both Tom and I that this has just become... It's worse than a joke because, for the most part, jokes are usually funny. This is not funny, and it's just it—it's just getting ridiculous. It's she's becoming drunk with power, and you know her. I, I'm not going to impugn her motives in the beginning. Other people might do that. I have friends who probably wouldn't have any problem just saying it. Um, I I don't know her heart. I'm going to assume that she, her heart was in the right place when she started this because she wanted to save lives. Um, I, I, I'm sure that, you know, she did not sit down and think, how can I steal liberty from, from Michiganders? How can I become a tyrant? Um, but this has just gone to her head. I mean, and, and it's completely unconstitutional what she's doing anyway. Um, and it's against the will of the people. And, and when I say that, I'm not talking about polls. Um, I'm saying it's against the will of the people because the legislature of Michigan is opposed to this. And the legislature are the people's representatives in Lansing. So 
if the legislature is opposed to this, then you can argue that the people are opposed to it. If they're if they're not opposed to it, then we'll vote out the legislature and put in people who are more aligned to our will. But as of right now, they are the people's representatives, and they are saying we don't we don't think what you're doing is right and constitutional. And she's saying, I don't care. I'm going to do what I think is right, regardless of what the people think or what the legislature thinks. And that's just tyranny. And it's, um, again, I, I, I don't know how any new and fresh way to word this because we've been repeating this for six months now, it seems like. Maybe not the full six months, but for a long time now. And I don't know what else to say about it. It's just, I'm hoping that these lawsuits will put a stop to it. Um, but the other, oh, um, I had another story and all of a sudden it disappeared here. Um, oh, here it is. It's from the same, um, uh, news, uh, source and actually the same writer. This one is more of an analysis by Tom Gantert. Uh, but I think it's worth looking at. I won't read the whole thing because it's, it's rather lengthy, lengthy. But he says, Whitmer's back and forth on football raises questions on the science she cites. Here again is where decisions are being made by fiat, meaning they're not grounded in any, in any law. That's the difference. Um, I know our listeners understand this, but I want to just rephrase this again. This is the difference between being like a monarchy and being a republic. In a republic like we have in our country, I mean, it's a democratic republic, but but it's a republic overall. It's a democratic republic in the sense that the people can vote our legislatures and we can amend the constitution and we can, you know, we can, we can, we have some say, but it's, but we can't violate the constitution. So hypothetically, if 99% of the American people hypothetically decided that we want to ban guns, even though a will of the people want it, they can't ban guns because we have a constitution. We have a republic. We have a, 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 a country of laws and not of men. Now, if 99% of the people really did believe that, which is ridiculous, and I'm just throwing that out there because I know it's a ridiculous argument. Um, if 99% of the people believe that, then they could attempt to have the Constitution amended to get rid of the Second Amendment, but they can't just arbitrarily say, well, the people want it, so we're going to get rid of it. So that's how we are a republic. We have a series of laws that have to be followed regardless of whether of what the popular will is, but the popular will can influence the election and influence how laws are changed and how the Constitution is amended. So therefore, it becomes a democratic republic because it's not fully a, a, a set of just strict laws that have to be obeyed um, under un, under all circumstances, but it's also not a direct democracy where just the will of the people, whatever the people want, the people get, and it doesn't matter if it violates the rights of other people. So in a monarchy, though, the king or queen can just make fiat decisions, like they're not rooted in anything. They can wake up in the morning and decide, today I'm going to ban trucks. Because uh, it woke me up this morning, I heard a semi-truck, and it woke me up and it irritated me, so 
I'm going to sign a law saying semi-trucks are banned. That is like a fiat decision that kings and monarchs can make because they are the ultimate ruler. They don't have to have any reason for what they do or say. They can just decide, you know, our, you know, a dollar bill is going to be worth 25 cents from now on because I decided it. You know, it doesn't have to be based on anything. It doesn't, you know, they could decide that rocks are going to be our new currency, you know, that the larger rocks are worth more than smaller rocks and paper currency is no longer valid. You know, they, they just have the ability just to just make a decision without any basis in law, any basis in uh, um, like uh, uh, any, uh, whatever you call it, like when things are set, um, like a uh, precedent, that's the word I'm looking for, like a precedent. So this is what is happening here with sports in Michigan um, under Whitmer. And this is, again, what I'm talking about, where she's almost become drunk with power, where she's making all the decisions as the supreme ruler. It says, Governor Gretchen Whitmer's path to allowing high school football this fall brings into question her claims that the decisions are based on science and data. Consider the timeline for the football decision. On August 11th, the Big Ten, which includes the University of Michigan and Michigan State, announced they were postponing the fall football season until spring. This was supported by Whitmer, but a backlash against the decision sparked several teams to try a shortened season. The idea has not flown with Whitmer, reportedly painting her as the main roadblock to college football this year. Then on August 14th, Three days later, the Michigan High School Athletic Association announced in a press release that football was being moved to the spring season. Um, so at the end of the day, we did everything we could to find a path forward for football this fall, Director Mark Yule said. But while continuing to connect with the governor's office, state health department officials, schools personnel, and the council, there's too much uncertainty. According to media reports, the MHSAA changed its mind and left the decision to start football in the fall up to Whitmer. Um, on September 2nd, Governor Whitmer was asked at a press conference about making a decision on whether to reinstate football. And she said, listen, I think that there are leaders in various roles that are struggling to find out what the right thing to do is. The science is incredibly important that we stay focused on that, that we work together. I think that crises really reveal people's true character. It's been said, and I think we see that happening. And I'm going to continue to work with the association to ensure that steps are be taken that will be absolutely, absolutely tethered to the best science and keep our athletes and our families and educators safe. Then a day later, Whitmer issued an executive order that allowed high school sports to commence in the fall, including football. In the meantime, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services advised against playing football. And then they give some quotes about them. Um, then it says, over the past three weeks, Governor Whitmer has had an executive order in place preventing soccer, volleyball, and football for high school and youth athletes, supported the cancellation of college football and called into question the character of sports organizations. But then she then reversed her executive order and is allowing these sports to be played, but then has her chief medical executive saying contact sports are unsafe and we shouldn't be doing them. And at no time has she released information about the science, the data, or the trade-offs being considered, which might allow parents, citizens, and the media to assess and evaluate whether her decisions are valid. 
So here again, we're not allowed to see any of the data. We're not allowed to see the science. We're not allowed to hear the debate. Just behind closed doors, she's making these fiat decisions. Just one day, I'll allow it. Then the next day, okay, I'm not going to allow it because the science is showing it can't be done properly. Then, well, but we can... We can't do baseball, but we can't do volleyball. We can't, we can't do this. We can't do that, you know. And she's just making these decisions seemingly just, uh, you know, j- just on the whim, on the fly. And she's not allowing us to the media, the, the, the citizens, the parents, the educators to be able to look at the information for ourselves and say, yeah, that um, it makes sense. I don't think we should have sports this year. Or uh, I think I think it's I think we can do it if we do. You know, according to the data, this this is the problem. That's the problem. If we if we do this and this differently, we can still do sports. We're not seeing it. Everyone's just going to her and saying, Governor, what do you want us to do? Uh, we're going to cancel sports this year. And then, well, all right, we're not going to cancel them. Oh, okay, we'll cancel some, but not all of them. You know, we're going to. You know, it's just. It just seems to be really on the fly, and I don't, I just don't like that, um, that the decision is being made behind closed doors, and we're not seeing what what dis, what is being discussed and why she's making the decisions we are. She might be totally right. I'm not, I'm not saying that she's wrong about these things. I don't know what the data shows, but the point is, she needs accountability, and she needs other people's input, and not just her looking at cold statistics, if that's what she's doing. And that's the problem. We don't know what she's basing it on. We don't know if she's just looking at statistics. We don't know if she's talking to other doctors. We don't know, you know, um, if she's looking at other states and seeing how they're doing it and seeing what mistakes they're making and saying, we don't want to make those same mistakes. We're going to cancel. We don't know. We don't know what's going into it. And it's just a dangerous precedent. And I don't, I have hope that this will end at some point, but one of the things that history teaches us is that once you give government power and authority, it's very hard, not only for the citizens to retrieve it back, but it's also very hard for the government to give it up. Because at what point is she going to feel like the people are safe enough that she can return the power to the legislature and to the people respectively? At what, what point you know, if there's, we'll say the numbers are all correct. If there's 200 deaths going on in the United States, in the Michigan, is that enough for her to say 200 deaths is worth it? I'm going to, you know, we can go ahead and settle with 200 people dying of the COVID. Uh, you know, I'm going to go ahead and let people make their own decisions. Is it going to have to be down to zero people dying before she says, I need to relinquish control because we got this, we got this, uh, we got this uh, figured out, you know, um, is it going to be when there's a vaccine? But even if there's a vaccine, not everybody's going to take a vaccine. Um, and there's still going to be people who die of this. So, you know, that that's the question. When you start down this path, at what point does she say, I'm, I'm comfortable with this amount of people dying a year? And, you know, and I'm comfortable that if, I pull out those restrictions for masks and social distancing that we're not going to have another spike, even though right now, hypothetically, we'll say 
it gets down to, you know, a hundred people dying a year or something. I don't know. I'm just throwing out a number here. And, but, and she says, okay, we've, we flattened the curve. It looks like the worst is over, but how does she make the decision that if you start relieving social distancing and not wearing a mask and, and not having these mandates, how, how confident are you that it's not going, we're not going to have a second wave of this. So at what, at what point is she going to say, I think I've, I've been ruling this long enough. I want to let the people decide. That's, that's where I get concerned because I, we don't know once she has full power and she's alone is going to decide how long this emergency is going to last. And she alone will decide how, you know, how, how, how often to keep renewing it and things like this. At what point is she going to be satisfied that I can give up that control because we're not going to have any more cases or we're going to have cases, but I'm comfortable with that level of deaths in this country because of in the state because of COVID that this is my concern that um, when is this going to end it? You know, at what point will she lay down the authority and say no more? Or is it going to have to be wrestled from her, which is just uh, which might actually end up having to come to that? Um, the Congress or the people will have to take it from her and say we're we're going to. I start to say steal back, but it's not stealing. Liberty is ours; it's God given. So it's you know when are we going to take it back? And say you're done. Your reign is over. We're going. You know, it doesn't matter how many people die a year. We're not going to continue this any longer. I don't know. Um, and I'm not. I'm not. I, I worry about it, as I think everybody should be concerned. I'm not suggesting that she's going to become a dictator or that she's never going to give up power. I'm just saying I just don't see an end scenario right now. I can't see what, at what point she would say, I'm comfortable that we're not going to have any more cases ever, or I'm comfortable that we are having cases, but this amount of deaths is fine with me. I'm, I'm okay with that, that many people dying. It's all right. I'm going to return power. Um, she just doesn't seem like the type who's going to say that can and this is from her perspective. I'm, I'm, I'm talking from her perspective here. I don't know how she's going to get to a point where she can look into a person's eyes and say, yeah, your parents died and that's fine with me, you know, because I'm okay with that. Your, your, your parent was, was, um, it was a, it was a, uh, a risk worth taking that your, your parents would die, your grandparents or your friend. Um, you know, she seems like the type who would have trouble talking to a constituent who had someone die of COVID and her say, that was an acceptable risk. I'm fine with them dying. I'm okay with it because people need to be free and I'm okay if they die. That's a hard thing to do for a president to do in wartime, to say your kid is expendable and it was worth them dying. And I just don't, I, she just doesn't seem like the type who 
she seems, I don't know. I don't know. She just doesn't seem like the type who could coldly say that. She seems like the type who would want to make sure that every single person is safe in this country. She wants to take care of them. And here I'm trying to give her the benefit of the doubt that her motives are good and she really cares about people and she really cares about death and she doesn't want to see one people one person die on her watch. But, you know, I, I don't know. Anyway, one of the fallouts here, this is another article from um, the Michigan Capitol. And it says uh, opioid ov- overdoses are up 22% in Michigan. Uh, it says here, Whitmer has mentioned how many lives she claims to have saved through her executive orders that have locked Michigan down since March 23rd. But the chief medical executive for the state, Dr. Joni Calden, may have unintentionally highlighted a darker side to Whitmer's executive orders, which the governor hasn't publicly recognized, and that is increased drug use during the COVID-19 pandemic in Michigan. From April through July, EMS, um, I don't know what EMS stands for, it doesn't tell me here, responses, oh, oh, this is like, like an EMT, EMS responses for opioid overdoses in the state were 22% higher than they were during the same time frame last year. Calden said at a September 2nd press conference, I've treated far too many people in the emergency department with opioid use, opioid use disorder and seen far too many people die. Um, and then it just ends with what isn't known is how much of the spike in drug use is because those people have lost their job or facing additional stress due to the COVID-19 lockdowns. And that is a good point. We don't know. Um, why there's been an excess of drug use. Um, And it could be stress. It could be boredom. It could be, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just hard to say. Um, But that is, seems to be one of the unintended consequences. And I'm sure, I'm sure when this is all over, you'll see a rise in alcoholism and domestic abuse cases and other other crimes like that because when people are not working they um crime is always a result i mean this is just something that all social scientists will tell you it's one of the reasons why um uh particularly republicans try very hard to make sure people are employed uh and not collecting welfare and unemployment. And I'm not saying that all Republicans think those things should be repealed, but they don't want people on them for a long period of time because um, you have uh, increase in crime when people are not working, when they're not doing something productive. Um, and also, even, even the Democrats understand this because you will hear them saying in large crime-ridden areas like Detroit, New York, um, Los Angeles, other places where there's a lot of crime, they'll say there's a lot of poverty. And they will associate crime and poverty with the same thing. When people are poor and they don't have jobs and they don't have things, then then they're going to get into mischief. I mean, we also have sayings like that, which is this one is not from the Bible, although, you know, the idle hands are the devil's workshop and other things like this. You know, for years, I mean, since probably the beginning of time, there's been the argument that if a person isn't doing something productive, they can get into trouble. So, um so I think we'll see an increase of that. And I think that's one of the unintended consequences. Uh, this article is from MLive. 
And some of this might be old news by the time uh, you hear this, but it's by Malachi Barrett. And this one is about President Donald Trump is holding a Saginaw County Airport rally on Thursday. And like I said, some of you, this will be old news by the time you read this, but it's still interesting that um, President Trump is planning a campaign rally in Saginaw County Thursday, one day after his Democratic rival is scheduled to visit the state. Uh, Trump is scheduled to speak at 7 p.m. from Amflight Saginaw, an aviation company located at the MBS International Airport in Freeland. Uh, Thursday's event, according to this article, is the president's first campaign rally in the state this year, coming while polls show the race tightening in Michigan. Uh, voters in Saginaw County were critical to Trump's surprise win in Michigan four years ago. The county is among a dozen that, um, oh, did I, I don't know if I said critical of, I meant voters in Saginaw County were critical to Trump's surprise win in Michigan four years ago. I don't know what I said, but the county is among a dozen that Trump flipped in 2016 after they previously voted for the Obama-Biden ticket twice and Trump was the first Republican to win Saginaw County since 1984. Um, and, you know, then it goes on. The COVID-19 pandemic put a stop to most in-person campaign activities throughout the summer. And he, Trump hasn't had any of his trademark arena rallies this year in Michigan. Um, and, but Mike Pence has visited Michigan several times in his absence. Um, of course, it says that people who register to attend the rally have to agree to voluntarily assuming all risks related to exposure to COVID-19. And so you can't hold the campaign liable for any health risks. Um, Democratic uh, presidential nominee Joe Biden hasn't held a rally in Michigan since the primary election in March. The former vice president is scheduled to visit Michigan on Wednesday, though his campaign hasn't released details about the schedule or location. Well, that's always a bright move. Not telling anybody where or when you're going to have a, a, a candidate visit. So, you know, you make sure that nobody shows up. That's just ridiculous. Um, but Jill Biden is going to attend a virtual event in Oakland County on Thursday as part of her national back-to-school tour. Um, but yet, even there... The Biden campaign has not released any information about Joe Biden's visit as of Tuesday morning. Uh, the vice presidential candidates, Kamala Harris, held a virtual fundraiser with Michigan on the same night that Mike Pence stopped in northern Michigan. That was like last week or something. I heard Mike Pence was here. And I just to give you a little bit of commentary. I heard Mike Pence give a very good speech. I didn't hear anything about Kamala Harris. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was pretty impressive from what I understand. Um, and then a little bit more information here about the campaign. The two campaigns are battling on the airwaves this week. Trump's campaign launched new advertisements after pulling off the airwaves in Michigan for six weeks over the summer. The ad launched in Michigan. Five other states criticized Biden for suggesting he would impose new shutdown orders if COVID-19 outbreaks worsen. Biden's campaign also launched new advertisements in Michigan and eight other battleground states on Tuesday. One ad argues Trump failed to contain the virus, while the other 
criticizes the president's proposal to cut payroll taxes, which would undercut Social Security funding. So there we go. Like I said, there's eight weeks until the election, which is not very long at all. We still have to go through the debates and then we really hit the home stretch. But Labor Day weekend is really when historically the campaign takes off. That's when um, things hit uh, full speed. So it'll be pretty interesting, although I think this is just my prediction. Again, I could be wrong. I've been wrong about a lot of things here. Um, and unfortunately, they're all being recorded. So <laughs> so people can go back and be like, man, Jim's not very smart. He keeps predicting these things and they never come to pass. But, um, but my guess is that uh, Trump is going to do very well in the debates because just uh, – well, a couple of reasons – Joe Biden isn't the sharpest tool in the shed, although he is a tool. Um, that's for sure. Uh, but okay, that maybe that wasn't appropriate. But um, but uh, Trump is a guerrilla fighter. Um, he's kind of like Mike Tyson as far as a boxer. I don't know if any of you remember Mike Tyson years ago, but Mike Tyson used to win because boxing used to have very set ground rules. So like you know. You have, you know, you can only punch and it can't be below the waist and, or below the belt and you can't, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But Mike Tyson would come out there and he would just go wild. I mean, he bit a guy's ear off at one point. I mean, you know, he was just, he played to win and he didn't care the rules. He's like, I'm playing to win. And, and nobody knew how to fight that because, you know, if you're an up and coming boxer, you've practiced a certain way. This is the way you box. There are certain rules you follow and you get into the ring with Mike Tyson and, you know, and he's a wild man doing whatever it takes to win. And you're just like, I don't know how to fight this. And this is and that's what I mean by Donald Trump is he's like a guerrilla warfare. He's like, you know, to use the analogy, he's like the Americans fighting the British in the American Revolution. The British had very set ways, a gentlemanly type of war. Um, you know, you march down there and you make a lot of noise and you intimidate the other team and or the other side and. Then you fire a few volleys and then you let the other side fire some volleys at you and then you fire volleys back. And, you know, it's just a very gentlemanly. There were certain rules you followed and you, you know, you didn't you didn't shoot commanding officers. You didn't shoot. You know, you only went after the peons, the peasants, you know, the, the small infantrymen. You didn't go after the echelon or anything like that. And then you fought the Americans and the Americans. Um, so. Um, you know, they, uh, the Americans were hiding in bushes and they were coming out of haystacks and they were just shooting randomly and they were killing officers and they weren't waiting for the British to shoot first and then they'll shoot and then give the British a chance. It's like they just, you know, they were climbing out of trees and they were, they were everywhere and the British didn't know how to fight them. They had never fought guerrilla warfare like this. And, and that's what I'm saying with Trump is Trump is very much like guerrilla warfare. And that's why Hillary Clinton had so much trouble because he just goes in for the kill and he'll start throwing out accusations and, and some may be true. Some may not, but the point is he's throwing out all these accusations. Some might say he lies. I don't know. I'm just saying, but he throws out these comments that might be considered lies or exaggerations. And it's like, where do you start? If you're debating Trump and you know, and he says, you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And a perfect example is with Hillary Clinton when, you know, he went after her uh, claimed, which I believe, but we'll just say for the sake of argument, 
He claimed, whether true or not, that, you know, that her husband had raped Juanita Broderick and that Hillary Kent laughed at a 13-year-old rape victim, you know, that she defended the, the rapist and got him off. And, you know, and he throws this all out in one sentence. And now she's got, you know, a minute to respond. What do you start with? Do you, do you defend your husband against the rape allegations? Do you sit and defend yourself against the allegations that you laughed at a 13-year-old rape victim? Do you talk about your policy toward women? Do you attack Trump for his policies or his behavior? You know, in that minute and a half, Trump was able to lobby five different accusations, and then she's got a minute to respond. She just kind of sat there like, you know, I, and at one point she said, I'm really glad that you don't, that you're not in charge of the judicial system in this country. I mean, she had nothing else to say. Of course, he responded with, if I did, you'd be in jail, which was just a classic line. Um, I, I absolutely, that one, I got, a, I gave a standing ovation. I was watching it. It was just like, oh, like direct hit. That was amazing. Come back. But she didn't know what to say. And she didn't know how to argue this because she had spent all of her years doing these debates where it's all very practiced and you have all these things that you say and, and, and how you respond to people and you look into their eyes and you might take their hand and, and Trump's wandering around, you know, like a caged tiger, just throwing at accusations and charges. And, and that's where I'm saying that Biden is going to be stuck in a position where he's not really, he's not that great of a debater anyway. Um, you saw back in the first debate when Kamala Harris attacked him for his, uh, policy on racial busing. Um, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what argument to make. He was completely blindsided because he's never actually been attacked on a stage before and had to defend himself. He's always been treated with kid gloves. And so the, my opinion is that Trump is just going to run circles around him. Biden is going to be wandering around, um, you know, like an old man who just wandered out of the nursing home and doesn't quite know where he's at or what he's doing. And and Trump will look like a leader. And um, so I think Trump's going to win the debates. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to win the presidency just because he wins the debates, but um, but it'll certainly give him a boost that I don't know if he needs it because it, the feeling around the country I have right now is that Donald Trump is in a very good position to win. Things could change in the next eight weeks, but as of right now, it looks like this is Trump's election to lose. So the important thing is that Biden won't be able to uh, stop Trump's momentum. If you're a Republican, that's what you want, is him not to stop the momentum. Uh, let me see. Um, okay, I'm just about out of time. Um, so uh, I'll save the other two stories for another time. Um, just want to say everyone have a great week. Uh, hope you enjoy the next eight weeks. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be fun. It's going to be enlightening. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be aggravating, but it, it's just democracy in action, which I just love. And, uh, election night, let's all hope that the results are very clear. Uh, I, I hope that the election is won one way or the other outright, and we're not going to have a really close race. I fear that we will, but We'll see what happens. All right, so uh, make sure to like, and uh, subscribe, and comment, and make sure you listen to Tom's show. And uh, we'll uh, talk to you here real soon. So bye, everyone. <laughs>